From beyond the farthest reaches of our galaxy they come. Two brains pulsing with a strange energy. These space brains come to share their love of science fiction movies. Hi, and welcome to Space Brains, the show where we joy watch sci-fi movies and then talk to the directors. <laughs> I'm sorry, and this is Mark. Hiya, now it's episode 86, and tonight we are not reviewing a film, we are talking film with West Australian award-winning writer-director Ben Young. Ben Young. So this is your spoiler warning, if you haven't... <laughs> Listen to Ben. No, no. But, well, if you haven't seen uh, Ben Young's Extinction, oh no! Actually, we do have a spoilers yeah, of Extinction yeah, in here, about, so. and we do probably talk about a couple other kind of general spoilers as well. <laughs> but anyway, so this is your warning. Warning, warning! <laughs> Go back and watch Extinction. Listen yeah. to our episode on Extinction, definitely. Uh, and if you were at our film festival, just remember. The film festival, <laughs> but <laughs> we're talking. Ben spoke at for a ben little while. Ben spoke there, and he's speaking to us tonight. So Ben is a award-winning writer director who did begin his career uh, career acting for the screen at the age of twelve. He headed off to university here in WA, studying a Bachelor of Arts in 2003 and completing a Master of Screen Studies at the West Australian Screen Academy in 2005. Since then, he's gone on to direct things like music videos, commercial, fashion film and written or directed series TV. His 2016 feature debut, Hounds of Love, was funded through Screen West's West Coast Visions, produced by Factor 30 Films, starring Emma Booth, Ashley Cummins and Stephen Curry. It had its world premiere at the 2016 Venice Film Festival, picking up a prize for Best Actress in a Debut Film, and received nine 2016 Actor Award nominations, including Best Film, Best Direction and Best Actress for Emma Booth's performance. Ben's second film, Extinction, is available and premiered on Netflix. It's how we saw it and how we reviewed it in and came out in 2018. It stars Michael Penner and Lizzie Kaplan and Emma Booth again and was produced by David Hoberman and Todd Leibman for Good Universe. For television, Ben's directing credits include a block on Netflix's first Australian-produced production, Clickbait, for Tony Ayres Productions, and the upcoming The Wilds 2 for Amazon from creator Sarah Stryker. Ben is currently in post-production on his next feature, Where All the Lights Tend to Go, starring Billy Bob Thornton, Robin Wright, produced by Griff First, Josh Kelselman and Robin Wright for Curmudgeon Films. Ben is based in Western Australia, the best part of Australia. <laughs> Definitely and the best part. Unless you're in Eastern Australia, in which case maybe that's okay too. Welcome to the show, Ben Young, and we are going to talk about your process as a filmmaker. We're going to talk about extinction and we're going to talk a little bit about science fiction films. So 
Let's sure. welcome Ben Young to the show. Yeah, g'day, Ben. Well, thank you so much for having me, guys. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for joining us. We're gonna, we did this last time. We interviewed Luke Spark um, on a previous episode and Hamid uh-huh. Al-Saref, and they're both uh, made sci-fi feature films, which are available on Netflix as well, like Extinction yep. is available on Netflix. Um, and we'd just like to start by just saying that we at Space Brains like to talk about the good and the great of the films we look at. So I just wanted to kind of let you know a couple of the things things I liked about Extinction. So oh, thank one, you. one of the thing one of the things I really liked was the actual concept. So the idea of AI has overtaken planet Earth and that they've kind of basically kicked us silly humans off the planet. What about you, Sorry? What was yep. one thing you liked? I mean obviously I really like that concept because it's fantastic. But I was just talking earlier with Mark here that one of the things I quite liked was at the beginning the way that the uh, the party gets interrupted by the attack and there's you know, lots of people get shot up and killed, but we have these two families. We have Peter and Alice and their buddies next door who are sort of hanging around and they work together a little bit and then they get separated. Yeah, so you think, okay, well, that's that's got rid of them. But then they come back together again on the roof before finally that other family gets killed. And the reason I like yeah. this is I don't like people being killed so much, but <laughs> it's more the case that as a way of saying, hey, you know, things are dangerous and we're going to be in a very dangerous world now. You know, we can't really threaten the main characters because we sort of, it's not an R-rated film. We know that we're not going to have, you know, children being blown up in front of us. So it's, you know, that <laughs> We get, did have one child get blown up. <laughs> yeah, there was. Yeah, okay, well, okay. But uh, we're not going to get the main children get blown up. And, yeah, Exactly. Um, what we could do and what was done quite well, I think, was by having that second family first separated, you think, oh, okay, well, that's them. Now we're going to follow this, you know, Peter and his family. Yep. But by bringing them back in, it gives that illusion of, oh, this is going to be a team that they're going to work together a bit and they'll have some hardships, but no, then we kill them. And suddenly you're thinking, oh, okay, this is, it was a way of introducing danger and threat without having to do that sort of rather, I suppose, a false threatening of the family where you kind of know they're not really going to get hurt. Like if they're going to get hurt, it's going to be more like his wife does where she gets a bit injured uh, and that becomes a plot point as opposed to increasing the stakes in in that sort of way. I I really liked that part of it. Thank you. What was it that uh, attracted you to the original story concept then? Yeah, I I think a little bit like you guys, um, when I read it, you know, I was a little bit take or leave it right up until the twist where we learned that, oh, hang on a minute, you know, these guys aren't human. These These are AIs. And then that kind of really opened up a whole world of opportunity for me. And it was, yeah, it was really that that got me into it. And and I also liked the notions of the fear that we have of the different. And at the time that we made the film, there was a lot of politics going on about the Middle East and all of this sort of stuff. And particularly in the US, there was a lot of fear mm. of anybody who, who was different. And I thought that we had an opportunity to play a little bit with that metaphor in the movie, which was really good. But interestingly enough, one of the things that might interest you about the script is the script wasn't set in the future. Right. Like when I read it, it just read like, you know, an average family in the here and now didn't specify anything to do with the design or anything to do with the costumes or anything like that. And then that kind of threw me for a six a little bit because then I thought, oh, well, okay, 
well, this doesn't work if it's just set now because I don't believe that AI would be wearing T-shirts that have bands on it or, <laughs> you know, they, they wouldn't be looking like us. And if we had the kind of technology where we could have AIs in every household, well, surely we've got to be in the future. Mm. And so that was one of the things that I enjoyed was thinking of the possibilities of well, how, how's this going to look? Because yeah. it's not even set in the future. Like when you read the script, it just reads like it's set in the here and now. And so um, coming up with that and like the little details, unfortunately, a lot of them didn't make it to screen. But I love the fact that when I introduced us into the house, Peter and Alice's house for the first time, I filmed all of this these shots of like coffee cups and yeah. um, cooking pans and all of that filled with plants. Yep. Like the AI have found a use for all of these objects which are in the home that they took over. And I think that, you know, had I got that onto the film, everyone would have thought, oh, okay, well, oh, Alice is a bit quirky and uh, mm. into her plants and all of that. But then, of course, when we learned the twist, we would have learned that all of that would have made sense. And I think kind of there's only two details like that that actually made uh-huh. it into the film. And uh, one of them is at the party, if you look at it, nobody's got a drink yep. and nobody's eating. And so that's one little hint that the AIs and the other thing, unfortunately it got made a little more subtle than I wanted it, but one of the kids gets hideously injured in the flashback and loses an eye. Right. And I used visual effects and throughout the whole movie, she's actually got two different colored eyes because one of them was fake. And so that was the reveal, you know, another little yeah. weird thing that I wanted up front. We go, why is that kid got two colored, different colored eyes? And then we learn later that like, oh man, it's because in the uprising, she, she lost an eye and she had a fake one put in much like, um, that was my little nod to C-3PO having the, <laughs> the silver leg, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, that got pulled back a lot more than I would have liked it to. So it's a little so subtle at the moment that I don't think a lot of people notice. But yeah, there are some things that attracted me to it. So I think in short, the things that attracted me to it most were, you know, the concept and the twist, yeah. AI taking over the the world, and then the twist that our heroes are not actually humans. They're the, mm. some would call the villains. And then secondly was the opportunity that I had to world build and, and talk about some of the political stuff that was going on in the world metaphorically yeah well you have the you know the human soldier there was it seemed very evident that you know when he does confront peter you know in the underground bit and he says yep. you know like oh it was my it wasn't even me that was fighting the ai it was yeah. my granddad and or grandfather or whatever and and he it's it's like he's been sold that concept that we are sold with war or whatever, that propaganda idea of attack exactly. these other people. You know? that's a, yeah. I'm glad you brought that bit up because that's another bit that I like and that wasn't that wasn't in the script when mm. I got involved and yep. I, I fought for that because I was yep. like, well, hold on a minute. It's like these guys who are coming down now, it would be years and years before and I, I love the idea that we get to talk about, you know, brainwashing and how mm. um, how how hate is something which is bred into us. It's, yeah very rarely a choice that we get to make on our own. And um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's another thing that I really liked about it. Yeah, and you, you know, you saw him when he when he comes to the daughter under the kitchen table, doesn't he? He kind of was like, oh, there's a yep. little girl here. And then later, as I said, he's saying, well, yeah, we weren't, we were told a different story. And, yeah, and, I mean, I felt, and Surrey actually picked up on, I'm glad you're saying about the pot plants because Surrey picked up on that. And I, it was something oh, that I, I felt, we, we talked about it when we reviewed Extinction a couple of episodes back and, um, I also felt like, you know, the girl in the elevator at the start, she's 
She's like almost robotic. She dad hops in, wants to talk to her, and she goes, "No, no talking on the elevator, like a robot does, like in a in a self talking elevator that we might have today, you know, in today's technology." So you did. It did seem like there was some subtleties, and and the party we picked up at the party that that no one was uh, drinking, and and so it did seem that way. But yeah, and Sari definitely picked on the pot plants. Well, it was the the no breakfast. Yeah, the no breakfast. So he he comes down from his his dream and the the cliched. Or the trope that we're used to is the grab coffee in one hand, you know, wife puts toast in the mouth, got a briefcase, yep. don't have time, I'm going to move door, out. Yeah. There's a whole table full of food that nobody eats, but there you go. But instead yeah. he comes down and she's just folding laundry and, and the, his daughter's under the table playing with that little monkey that says <laughs> monkey see, monkey do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was so difficult to figure out how to film this movie because – you know, one of the things as a filmmaker, you want to always give actors something to do. Yeah. Um, well, off, often you do, particularly if they're just talky exposition scenes. And it's like, well, what are they going to do? You know, like, mm. well, if they're wearing clothes, oh, they don't sweat. But oh, they still get external stuff on them, you know, like they yeah. could still potentially get dust on them and all of that kind of business. So laundry is something that these things would do, you know. <laughs> yes, they'd still, you know, interact with other technology that could break. And so fixing stuff is something that they could do. But, yeah, these were all a lot of challenges that I, I got faced with when when making it mm, there was yeah. a, you know a whole um a whole world that we had to had to come up with that isn't necessarily even explored on the on the screen it's yeah. just it's about what we didn't show as much as about what we did did you have much of a say then on the set and the sort of the costume and the, that style that the characters were yeah. wearing yeah, I, I I had a I had kind of all the say yep. in that, which was good. It yep. was one of the areas where I was sort of left alone a little bit. Um, not quite as much as I wanted, but I was like, okay, well, it can't look like now um, because then it's just not going to be believable when we hear the twist and all of that. So it's got to be different. And I thought, well, they're they're robots, and so I don't think you know, fashion is sex is what drives so much of everything it means to be human. I mean, mm. part of the reason why most people get their hair cut is because they want to appear physically. If, if humans didn't care how they were perceived by other humans, you know, I think we all agree that fashion would be completely different. Advertising would be completely different. Advertising or probably almost wouldn't exist. Mm. And um, all, all of these things. And so it was like we, I wanted to design a world that just looked functional. Mm. Yeah, it, and you, so that was why, you know, the colour palette, every, every time I make a movie, um, the first thing I do is I try and break the movie up into, you know, different worlds. And um, so I wanted this world to be very grey and very bleak and very blue and, you know, no no reds, no anything like this and just, um, yeah, reserve, you know, hold, hold stuff back just to make it feel a little cold and a little robotic. Now we noticed this sort of felt a bit like an apple shop. <laughs> you get you go into an right. Apple store and it's a, it's all those sort of um, smooth contours, but it's all clean lines with uh, matte muted colours with metallics and silvers and and so on. And it yes. looked like it looked yep. like the factory he worked in because he kept referring to it as a factory. He didn't say what was built there. Yep. Um, yep. You know, ironically, the AI were building children, but <laughs> <laughs> but no, but exactly. the factory itself didn't you know it wasn't grubby and dirty. It, it, he was in some sort of octagonal white cylindrical room thing mm. plugging in a very yeah, and, tesla looking yeah, sort can, of can you guess what that really was like we, we didn't build that that actually exists in in belgrade serbia where we shot it can you guess what it is 
Ooh, I don't know, like an air tunnel tester or something. Oh, like. you got it! You got yeah. it! It's a, it's a wind tunnel wind designed, tunnel. yeah, designed to test um, wind resistance on missiles. Oh, cool! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Wow. Yep. That is interesting. Well, and yeah. did, so, did you find that, or did you set um, your we, production designer? Yeah, our wonderful location, yeah, our wonderful okay. locations team found yeah. that we actually shot the factory is actually a top secret military base mm. that for some somehow we were allowed access onto under armed guard yeah <laughs> so we couldn't go into the wrong places but yeah. that's just, that's a top secret military base that we were actually allowed to film on wow uh, that's cool eh? uh, it, it reminds yeah. me of when we were talking with hamad yeah hamad al sarif yeah hamad al sarif we're talking to him and he was he had this amazing house at the start of his feature film called in paradox where yep. you know it sort of starts off it, it almost looks a bit sort of futuristic it's it's sort of Layered hexa- hexagons at different yeah, it's a levels. Beautiful in, house. It's beautiful, like sort of futuristic looking thing, and that was the yep. Shah of Iran's um, holiday home or something yeah. rather stupid. Yeah. But wow. One it of was his an actual real thing. Yeah, his um, well, that- assistant or something rather knew the cousin of the yeah, Shah they just got and permission they, to shoot. There. They said, "Yeah, you can go shoot there." And he's like, "Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. fantastic." That, that, that's actually reminded me of something else interesting that had to do with the the look of the movie. And um, when I first got involved, we were, we were trying to shoot the movie in Sydney, um, mm. which I, I would have loved, but it just ended up being too expensive. And so we decided to shoot it in Belgrade, Serbia. And then we got there and we still ran out of money. And so what was supposed to be an 80% studio shoot uh, and 20% location ended up becoming um, 20% studio shoot and 80% location. And, of course, Serbia has still got so much brutalist architecture around that we had to kind of design everything to make it look like that was on purpose, you yeah. know, and I think it kind of worked in our favour in the end. Yeah, it did. I, I, I think it looks, as Sari was saying before, like that Apple shop kind of futuristic, yeah, if the AIs took over everything slick and clean and and then the way you've yep, shot functional. that as well, yeah, the way that then it's come across on the camera, it's extremely kind of clinical and, and those colours you're talking about as well do make it very much, you know, down and depressing, clean, green world that AIs would operate, as you said, without that void of the human touch, the, the human desire. Yep. So you've read the script, you're interested in getting involved. What Straight away as a filmmaker, how do you kind of then think, okay, this is... I want to, I'm going to make this. What's my intention to make this? Like, what do you? What did you want the audience to get out of it at the end of the film? I wanted them to think to you know question their own belief system in you know why they might feel a particular emotion towards others, particularly negative emotions. I wanted them to kind of see the humanity in people who didn't necessarily come from the same background as, as them. And so that was, I, I'm not really interested in making any movie that I can't, um, <clears throat> I can't make some, some kind of comment with. Yeah. Um, and so that was really the big opportunity that, that I saw because it's, it's not often, um, well, certainly, I mean, it is often um, so many of, of these kind of movies, you know, the, the, the bigger Hollywood popcorn movies, they're just, kind of vacant mm. or they have they have a statement or a theme which is sort of tacked on at the end and it feels sort of preachy and not very interesting and uh, and I just feel like I would like my movies to make people argue about mm. something you know I, I'm less interested in in making a statement but more about raising a, a question that hopefully you know if a group of friends go and watch it together they can go and have a coffee or a beer or whatever it is afterwards and mm. 
and argue about it. You know, yeah. say, well, no, I took this from it. Well, no, I took this from it. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not particularly smart. I'm certainly not smarter than your average person. And so I, I don't feel like I ever want to preach about anything in any of the movies that I make because I'm not, I don't know the answers to anything, but there's certain things that I think us as humanity don't handle very well that I wish I knew the solutions for, but I don't. And so uh, at least hopefully I can get people to talk about some of them. Do you, do you feel that there's anything that you personally notice, but in the, I mean, even going back to your short films or any, all your scripts that you've written, like have you, have you noticed a common theme that you maybe come back to at all? And strangely, it's even in extinction to a degree, but um, I often come back to parent-child relationships. Yeah. Like kind of Hounds of Love is certainly about that. The one that I just did is literally about a father and son and um, extinction less so, but mm. obviously the family unit is a part of it. But yeah, yeah I'm, I'm very interested in the dynamics between, you know, people who are in a, 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 a relationship, like partners. Um, and I'm also really interested in, I'm interested in family relationships and the complexities that, that come with that. Well, I mean, in a way, really, I suppose extinction has that uh, humans having created their AIs as sort of a, a generation there and a conflict between these generations. You'd yeah. almost say that's sort of a bit of a familial yeah. relationship, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it had yep. that feeling when Miles is talking to them, talking about his grandparents were the ones who who had the fight with the AI, which it's yep. it sort of uh, it brings a couple generations across there. But an yep. interesting point that we noticed in a number of films that we have reviewed is the idea of director's cuts. Yeah, so Ridley Scott has been fortunate to have about seven versions <laughs> of Blade Runner yeah. come out. Uh, the, yeah. And the, there's a James Cameron, of course, who managed to get these aliens directors cut out. And then there was the Alien 3 had a director's cut, uh, mm. which is uh, very good. And there's any number of other director's cuts around. Donnie Darko. Donnie yeah. Darko. Yeah. And if, what, what if Netflix came and said, you know, here's some undisclosed large sum of money. Please, yep. you know, please would you do a, a, a director's cut? Would you go and go through your yes. existing stuff? Would you reshoot anything? Uh, how how would you go? Know. With that movie, I don't think we reshot anything. Like it was, it was pretty uh, good in that regard that we didn't botch anything up so much that we had to go and reshoot it. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I have a completely different structure. For I, I would have put the movie together very differently if the buck stopped with me. Um, and I, I'd love that opportunity to do, to do that. You know, um, that's the, that's the thing, you know, and I don't want to sound like I'm being negative about it because the reality is that um, as a filmmaker who is working for, you know, unless I'm putting up my own money to make mm. my movies, the reality is I'm, I'm working for people who've put in millions and millions of dollars and they've done whatever amounts of research and market research and stuff that just doesn't interest me. And for whatever reason, often what their research is saying or what their opinions are completely clash with mine creatively. And while I disagree, and that can be heartbreaking because I, I don't often feel like the solutions that they come up with are better than what I wanted to do, but you have to accept that that's a part of the job. Do you think there should be more director's cuts? Do you think there's validity in them? Yes. Or do you, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But at the end of the day, I think that everything comes down to the dollar and yeah. I think Extinction wasn't a big enough movie that it would warrant a director's mm. cut. You know, I, I would say 
and um, I'm I'm thrilled that I still get I still get hit up from people on Instagram or whatever from all over the world who just watched the movie, and um, it, it divided audience. A lot of people hate it, but a lot of people absolutely love it as well. And um, unfortunately, the amount of people who absolutely love it, I don't think is big enough to warrant. They're the ones who'd watch a director's cut, and I don't think it warrants the cost to make a director's cut just for that number of people, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, but yeah. you know, the logistics of filmmaking for sure. And well, you spoke, yeah. you, you got to speak at our festival and you spoke about it. And I think Angela, the MC suggested everyone should go away and watch it. So hopefully you're getting yeah. some more feedback because definitely a few people I know since the festival have gone and <laughs> watched Extinction. So oh, and they're passing on oh, some lovely. very positive feedback and parts they liked, oh, etc. Did you have a favourite part of the film? Um, like a part of the movie or making yeah. the movie? No, well, well, it could be either, but let's start with the, a part of the actual film. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that there's a few sequences in it that I'm really proud of. And one of, one of them is when Peter goes off looking for the kids and he goes into Ray's apartment and the, and the, and the dropship comes down and it shoots the house up and he has to run through and he ends up in the hallway. I, I really like that sequence. But I, I also think the bit that I'm most proud of, I think that the best storytelling is just before they operate on Alice. Mm-hmm. And then when Alice has the flashbacks as well and wakes up and finally realises that, you know, Peter isn't crazy, she knows who she is. Um, I like that that sort of block of 10 minutes I'm I'm pretty proud of and I think, you know, Lizzie Kaplan is fantastic. And all three of those actors are just so good in that moment, I think, you know, um, Israel Bruchard and, of course, the lovely uh, Michael Pena. And so, um, yeah, 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 so uh, that, that 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 bit, I, I really I really like that bit, and also, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and this is a nerdy filmmaker thing to say, but before I made this movie, the only special effect shot I'd ever done was a shot of a rabbit against a green screen for a short film, and so <laughs> I, I, I was also pretty happy with um, how some of the action sequences turned out, given yeah. I'd never filmed any action before ever mm. um and so uh you know i like i like i like all the action in the end i think all that's pretty cool and um yeah yeah it's a great like cat and mouse chase sequence and like sorry saying wiping out the other family that was a good sort of raising the stakes there's also when yeah. they're when they're on top of the building and they look over and there's uh-huh. the, there's other people on another building that's a really great I, little narrative i laughed, oh, I laughed quite hard when that happened that. <laughs> yeah because it's it's kind of like it's it, you know it's saying to them no you know oh, we can maybe wave for help no you can't look what happens to these other people you know well, <laughs> a, a, fun, a fun fact the person at the front of that crowd is me <laughs> oh. Well, there you go. You're doing the Hitchcock. You're getting yourself in there that's, and getting that's, wiped out. That's my cameo. I, I made sure that my cameo was so small that no one could see my face. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but that, that's me and that's my voice screaming out help in the background as well. Yeah. So, I mean, what what was the process like? You'd come from Hounds of Love, which is a, a personal story that you've written. You've, you've gotten yeah. local West Australian funding. You've made it. Uh, it's gone out to market, so to speak, and, and it's been quite critically successful here in, here in Australia. And then you're yeah. offered how, uh, sorry, Extinction, which is like a much bigger script, and I'm presuming when that's given to you, you, you kind of suggested that it's a bigger budget. What was, what was that like yeah, for right. you as a filmmaker? Oh, look, it was surreal. I was kind of caught up in a wave that I didn't, really know how to navigate because um, I was fortunate enough to get West Coast Visions and make um, Hounds of Love under West Coast Visions. And, um, but 
traditionally West Coast Visions movies, they, they all help the director, but the directors don't necessarily run off to Hollywood. They might be able to, you know, start getting offered some adult television or some stuff like this, you know, which they can use to pay the ways while they're trying to make the next independent film. Hmm. But, um, and I, 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 I try and humbly say this, I'm not sure that any other West Coast Vision movie was, uh, swept up internationally like Hounds of Love was. It mm. won an award at the Venice Film Festival and all of this. So literally my life changed overnight and I was getting all kinds of phone calls from all kinds of fancy people all over the world wanting to fly me everywhere for free and put me up and meet me. And um and I, I got I got sent Hounds of Love. I got told it was an urgent read from my agents because it was I, I got a real offer. Like, uh, like we're going to pay you this much if you want to make this movie. And um, James McAvoy is semi-interested in it. Um, you need to say yes because they want to put you on a flight to London in two days to go and have dinner with James um, to talk about the possibility of doing the movie. And um, and two weeks ago, I premiered my very low-budget movie in Venice, and now I'm getting offered to be flown around the world to go and have dinner with movie stars and to talk about <laughs> – you know, big budget movies, bigger, much bigger budget movies. And so um, my agents very much wanted me to, to do it just mm. because it was such a leg up. Very few people get to shoot a movie the size of Extinction before their first movie is even out. Mm. Um, and um, so it was a trajectory that is almost un, unheard of. And I, I didn't really know how to navigate it very well and, um, and kind of, yeah, got swept away. And I learned a lot in the process. Mm. Speaking of coming from, uh, you know, you said that people often move on to TV shows here. You know, I imagine Water Rats and you know, Back to the yep. Rafters and so forth. You've you've done yep. a few TV sort of shows, uh, you know, The yep. Wilds and Clickbait, uh, which uh, yep. I think the ones on the stand, ones on Netflix. And how yeah, is- Clickbait is Netflix and Stan uh, and Wilds is Amazon. Oh, Amazon. Sorry. Okay, so. Um, how does that compare to either of the films uh, or any of the three films really that you've worked on or are working on? Um, the material is very, very different, you know, um, but uh, television is sort of a director's gift because um, you, the director has really not got anywhere near the responsibility that they have in a movie. Like if television isn't received well, the director always gets away with it. They're never blamed. It's always the showrunner and the writers and the producers because television is a, a writer's medium and, film is a director's medium so television is a gift from my point of view because by the time i get the call the the show is usually in pre-production so it's all financed it's often cast half the locations are found and you just get to say yes or no and the commitment is minuscule compared to what the commitment is in in making a movie so it's um it's a gift in that sense um what was the what was the question again I was just wondering how making those film, uh, making the TV shows is different to making those films. Which- yeah, so that, that's right. And so um, the director is not the boss. So you know, you inherit the cast, you inherit a lot of the locations. You you are in charge of creatively realizing the script, but you don't have the power just to rewrite it if you do, if you don't like something. You're very much there to serve the 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 writers and the producers and the showrunner um and so you have a lot less power but with a lot less power you have a lot less responsibility so i find it a lot easier um in in a way uh, it's always a lot faster but there's something nice about just knowing that like well it's not all on my shoulders here mm. you know um so that that's the main difference and and of course the other main difference is traditionally with tv you get a lot less time to shoot it so you you can't necessarily you get less pre-production way less post-production 
and often less time to shoot. And so, unfortunately, it means that there, there is a lot of creative compromise in that regard. And are you just with the TV, you're, you're there, you're direct, obviously, you know, with the camera and the crew and the cast, et cetera. Are yep. you then in post-production at all or is that more mm-hmm. the producer and do you, do you, yep, do you, you are, have more but of it? Yeah, it way more the way more the producers and the writers. So to put it in perspective, you normally get anywhere from one week to two weeks an episode mm. as a director in television. I think on The Wilds I only got three days or yeah, something right, for well. my episode. And then you go, you present your director's cut, and then without any input from you, if the writers or producers don't like something you've done, they will recut it mm. and um, change it around and <laughs> all, all of that kind of stuff. And then when you see it on television, you as the director are seeing it for the first time. <laughs> Whereas uh, with to put it in perspective, you know, like I think The Wilds was the last show I did, and I got somewhere between three and five days. I think it was three days for my episode. Mm. I just did the finale of season two. And so, yeah, three days in post that was my whole responsibility i've been in post on the movie that um i wrapped in december of last year i've been on it since january and i am on it full time still yeah and it's uh and what are we now july so what's that six months after i finished shooting i'm still on it full time yeah. so that's a significant you can you can see how much more responsibility the director has when it comes to making a movie yeah of course okay that's a good clarification thank you for that um, no worries. Do, do you see, I know you're saying that they're a bit of a gift. Do you see yourself making more TV in your future yep. uh, filmmaking yep. career? Yep, absolutely. Because TV, like job directing, so when you just get, hey, are you interested in doing an episode of this or whatever, it's, it's how I survive. Yeah. It's much more lucrative than movies because it's just much less of a commitment. Mm-hmm. And um, so, um, yep, absolutely. And I'm, I'm all for being a jobbing director. Yep. And there's a couple of ideas I've got of my own that I wouldn't mind developing up and trying to turn into a series. But, yeah, I'm just so busy with all the movies at the moment that that's a bit, a bit tough. Are there any TV shows that you'd like to have a, you know, a bit of a, a guest direction of? Oh, God. Um, Jump into Stranger I'm Things. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to get involved in, you know, something like Stranger Things or Walking Dead, which is so beloved and been around so long. I mean, yes, I would do it because it would look amazing on the CV. But I get the stuff that really excites me is um, new stuff. You know, I want to mm. be there for the discoveries, you know. And yeah. it's also hard when you're um, – a director who is just coming in to do one episode and if, if it's been like a couple of seasons two two or more you turn up and all the actors know everybody so well a lot of the crew know everybody really well and you're literally this stranger who turns up on set and tells everybody what to do mm-hmm. and so that's um incredibly intimidating um that's the scary thing about television and so for me i i would even though you know you get all the the teething problems with first series, um, I would, uh, I think I'd still be more attracted to that unless it was something awesome. I mean, if Sopranos was still running, like who wouldn't want to direct an episode of that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Okay. So Deadwood, I mean, if Deadwood came back for another season, I would fight tooth and nail to try and get on that. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. So your kind of your future you're heading is is more of your own films and obviously taking up the TV opportunities. Can we kind of rewind yep. back in your career? When, when did you first make your first film as a, as a filmmaker? Uh, my first short film, I yep. think I made in two thousand and two mm-hmm. um, or three. Probably probably three. I think right. it was two thousand and three. Yeah, end of two thousand and three. I think I was my first one. Um, and 
yeah, and my, made my first movie in 2016. And, and, and I made my first television in 2007. Right. Okay. And and so prior to that first short film, had, had you been writing, like writing scripts or yeah. stories? Yeah. I, I, I was writing movies. I yep. wasn't really writing. Like I, I wrote, I think, three feature-length scripts before I even tried to write a short film. It was just yeah. a medium that I never understood. Mm. And um, I think as a result of that, I never really made, a particularly good short film because I didn't love short films. Like mm. I loved movies. And so I'd go to festivals and I'd watch shorts and I'd oftentimes be underwhelmed and almost a hundred percent of the time, some short film would be lauded over by everybody. And I just wouldn't understand it. Like mm. it would be so arty or there'd be something about, it. I just go, I just don't get this. And I think unfortunately with my shorts, I, I, I knew, I felt, um, I think short films were more important back when I was starting than they are now, but I think I felt that it's like, all right, well, I, I have to make a short film or no one's going to let me make a movie. And I just um, tried to intimidate the short films that were being made that were being successful for the filmmakers. And I don't think I really put my heart into any of them because it's not a medium that I ever really cared for myself whereas um i've always loved movies and um i think my my first movie was way more successful as a movie than any of my shorts were as shorts every movie i've made despite you know mixed reviews or whatever has been more successful than any short that i ever made mm. yeah no i look i totally understand where you're coming from now i've found short form hard to get my head around like because it's such a particular mm. recipe and as you said People can say that this is a great short film, and yet you're the way my brain works, and I think yours is probably a bit similar in terms of the creative filmmaking. You're kind of looking at a longer story, you know, and so yep. yeah. And then now, of course, now with sort of the rise of the streamers, you have that sort of maybe eight part TV show, which is an even bigger story again, you know. Yep. So yeah, it's it's, it's always I always find it interesting to hear what other people's perspective on that um, is. What what drew you to writing stories or wanting to be a filmmaker to begin with, Ben? Um, I, I mean, I kind of sucked at everything that I did. Like, <laughs> I went to a, um, uh, you know, an all-boys school that was really sport-driven and I'm completely uncoordinated and got bullied as a result of that and so naturally was kind of drawn to the drama crowd. And once I started doing drama, I, I certainly was never anyone who stood out, but I found my people and I was much better at drama in comparison to what I was at all of the sports. And um, and so I just kind of thought, right, this is the only thing that I've ever liked enough to want to work hard for. And um, so, you know, I wrote my first feature-length movie at, at 15 years old. I, I don't remember ever wanting to do anything different. And what is your, your process for writing these films? Do you start... I mean, some ideas, for example, as to, you know, start with the finale. It's like you've, you've got an idea of uh, how a story will, will culminate. Do you start there and then work yep. backwards or do you start with the inciting incident and yep, that. so on? Start at the, the end? Inciting incident. Inciting yeah, I mean, incident. it's always, yeah, it's, it's always different, you know. Like one script that I wrote that I hope one day will get made because I think it's really good um it's just so dark that everybody's terrified of it um but um one one you know that that particular movie i just had an image and it's not even particularly cool when i think about it but i just had this picture it was nighttime and there were two guys dressed in prison uniforms running through the bush and one of them was soaked in blood and i just saw that image i was like well who are they where are they going you know like as a storyteller i was like all right well, i'm engaged by that image i'm seeing so 
what next? Well, they clearly just got broke out of prison. What's the first thing you're going to need when you get out of prison? A car, you know? And so it was just, and I built the whole story from that image. And then I was like, well, whose house do they break into? And, oh, what if they break into a house and the guy who's covered in blood actually finds a teenage girl who's just tried to kill herself and ends up saving her? And then you go, well, that's an interesting inciting incident. Someone breaks into a house and ends up finding someone hanging from a ceiling fan and resuscitates them and saves their life. I mean, what a complex relationship you have right there. And so um, that that was sort of where, where that one came from. Um, and so, yeah, and the thing that I'm writing at the moment is based on a short story, and the, the short story is is just one scene in real time, and that is what I, I thought, well, this is a terrific inciting incident for a movie. And so, yeah, inciting incident is a good one. But um, once I have that, then you have to quickly go to the who, because the who is the most important thing. And by that, I mean the protagonist. And um, so I now, the first thing I do, once I've got my little inciting in, uh, incident, which is usually, you know, the premise of, of the movie, all right, well, who, who is this person? And the most you know, there are no rules, um, but there's a lot of principles that seem to work over and over again in, in movies. And um, one of those principles is that characters need to change. And so I go, right, I've got my inciting incident. Who, who is my who? So what's, how are they, who are they when they begin the film and who are they when they end the film? And I don't worry about plot points. It's just like, okay, well, maybe my character starts off as somebody who absolutely hates their mother. I know by the end of the movie she needs to jump into her mother's arms, you know? And um, and so once you work out those characters, then you can start to work out the plot around that because, you know, it's a quote that I stole, um, which I, I don't mind saying, but it's kind of my mantra. And that is um, story is the journey for truth and plot is just the road you take to get there. And so I think that under, the, the story is the humanity of what's going on in in the movie and it's the it's the characters and it's what their relationship with the human condition is and that's that's the story and the plot is what helps them evolve as human beings over the course of the narrative yeah i mean that's what we need as an audience isn't it we need that journey to be true like the plot points are the plot points but we actually we need to see that uh evolution of the character Yep, and it can be simple, you know. It's like Jaws is just so perfect. Schneider is a cop who absolutely is terrified of the water, and in the end of the movie, he just ends up in the water. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> yeah. in order for him to beat this thing, he's got to he's got to meet him on his own grounds, you know. And um, so, or or her a shark that big probably would have been a, a female. I imagine. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> I think they try to uh, you know in order to have the sequels, they had to say that uh, it was a female line of sharks that. <laughs> Well, fun bit. fact, female white pointers are significantly bigger than male ones. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I've seen a doco about it in the South Australian Bight where they went out and they got yep. killer whales that had attacked a great white but then a great white attacked a killer whale and, yeah, so and it was all females because <laughs> of the yep. sizing yep. of them. Do you have a film or a filmmaker that then has influenced you over that, that you know, it could have been years ago or it could have been more recently? I mean, you just yep. mentioned Jaws, but... Yeah, is there, is there a film that stands uh, out from your childhood or uh, a filmmaker so, that, that kind of connects so to you? Many. <laughs> so many. Yeah. And I think early on, but still today, I'm a massive Star Wars nut. Like, I'm not even going to tell you how many Star Wars figurines I have in my house from the 80s. Oh, no, like, please do. <laughs> literally, 
I've got I've got hundreds of them still still on their card back and you know like yeah. I'm a Star Wars collector and I have been my entire life I just can't help it and uh, so you know obviously George Lucas and Star Wars was my that was my first love I cannot remember being obsessed with anything earlier than I was obsessed with Star Wars and um, and then I kind of and it makes sense I don't think I'm alone when when I say this but. You know, obviously, Star Wars is such a great adventure story. Mm. So I was drawn straight to Indiana Jones. And so that in, introduced me to the Spielbergs. And so I really liked those kind of – and I loved Westerns as a kid as well. Um, mm. So early on, after Spielberg, I kind of started to discover Clint Eastwood as a filmmaker. I just loved him. And then as I learned more about filmmaking, kind of in my formative years, I became obsessed with Terrence Malick. And, um, of course, Stanley Kubrick, because you have to. And uh, Steven Soderbergh is another one who is really influential on, on me um, as well. Um, there's just so many of them. In more recent years, Danny Villeneuve and um, Steve McQueen. Um, so, yeah, it's it's always changing and always evolving. Deborah um, uh, Granick is another one who I just think is fantastic. I just wish she made more films. And, uh, yeah, so many of them. But Justin Cazell, I think, is uh, if I was going to talk about an Australian filmmaker whose movies I watch and wish I'd made, it would be Justin's. I think he's fantastic. And, well, you've said, so Star Wars, is Star Wars like your favourite science fiction film? Oh, without a doubt, hands down. Have you seen (laughs) anything like recently that you think stands out to you in in the science fiction world? Probably... Probably not, you know. It's for me to want to watch science fiction. It's really got to have a a, a, a thing, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't be more clear. But I mean, um, X X Machina was mm. awesome. That that was a science fiction film that kind of rocked my world. Mm. Um, but yeah, I tend to like the smaller ones, you know, because the smaller ones are still about people. You know, Primer is yeah. another awesome one. Um, yeah, I tend to like the smaller ones where it's more about the people dealing with the situation. Um, but yeah, I can't, I can't even remember the last new one that I watched. I mean, Arrival, I just that blew my mind. Yeah. That was my favorite film of the year when that came out. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I like it, but I don't like just the you know repackaging of the same thing we've seen a million times before. Mm. Yeah, it's and it sounds like the thing that tickles you is more of a like the psychological, uh, sociological yeah. science in sci-fi, you know, they, all those ones you've just 100%. listed off Arrival, even though Arrival's aliens, yeah. it's actually the fact that it's mind-altering the timeline for her and then the way yeah. the filmmaker delivered that to us as an audience. Yeah, we I were like- we were baffled, weren't we, you know? Um, so, yeah. yeah, so I think that's what I'm getting from you is you're like in that side of the sci-fi. <laughs> You're 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 very right. Like I'm I'm only just realizing that myself. You're a good therapist. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, look. The thing is, you are championing the filmmaking world because you've you've made three very interesting feature films that the public can go and see, and you've you. written a whole bunch of other stuff. I, I did hear you speak at Cinefest a couple of years ago, and you you did mention something like you'd written about nine or ten scripts before oh, Hounds of Love. Yeah, yeah, and obviously, Hounds of Love was the eleventh that I wrote. Yeah, and that, that's amazing. And the first that got made. Yeah, and and that's amazing. I think that's such a really great writing technique or or tip to for young writers to sort of pick up on. So, do you have any sort of 
Uh, do you have any other tips or is that your tip for maybe someone that is starting oh. out in the filmmaking world or or any other advice for someone that is sitting down to, oh, yeah. I want to be a script writer or I'm a filmmaker and I want to write my own scripts? What, what would be your advice to them? So hurry up and fail because no one, this is, this is not something, screenwriting is not something that anybody is born able to do. It's a craft and you have to learn it. And the only way that you learn it is by reading a ton of books watching a ton of movies and trying and failing and letting people read your, read your stuff and, um, and then, uh, you know, and taking criticism and going off and doing it again. But I think maybe the best piece of advice that I've got is something that I, a realisation, kind of light bulb moment that I had when I was freezing my butt off in Serbia, um, <laughs> making extinction and, um, and uh, my film Hounds of Love was playing at the Tribeca Film Festival. And like pretty much the whole cast went and a lot of the heads of department went, producers went, and I couldn't go mm-hmm. um, because I was making Extinction. And I did have massive FOMO then um, and was really quite upset with it. And then I just thought, hang on a minute, Ben, you didn't become a filmmaker because you want to walk red carpets and bask in your own glory. Yes, that's very nice when that does happen, but... You became a filmmaker because you're a storyteller. And right now, what better excuse do you have to not be at a film festival than you're making a movie? And it was then that I realised that I guess there's two reasons why anybody gets involved in filmmaking, possibly any any form of art whatsoever. And um, one of those reasons is re- result mm. and one is process. And the result is obviously walking the red carpet at whatever film festival or, or winning award, mm. an award or getting fan mail or anything like that or getting a, a big payday. That's a result and everybody likes that and you're allowed to like that. But that is such a small part of what it means for anybody, even the most successful people that you've ever met, still have to go and shoot for 18 hours a day in the freezing cold and, you know, just read about the conditions that The Revenant was made on and and made in. And that was made with some of the biggest, wealthiest, most successful filmmaking people and actors in the world. And so you have to be in it for the process. Mm. You have to love those freezing nights and you have to, you know, love the challenge of how difficult the day is and getting through it. And even when you don't get the result, like if you sit down and you write a screenplay and you send it to producers or directors and gets rejected by everybody you know remind yourself of why you started to write it and what you felt when you were having those ideas staring at a blank and conquering the blank page because to write 100 pages of anything is a huge achievement and so learn to love that process and if you do you're just going to be prolific and eventually the result will come from that you know and accept the fact that if you do write that script then no one likes it well, you are a hell of a lot better writer than you were before you wrote that. And so maybe they'll like your next one, you know, or the one after that or 11 after that in my case. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I really like that. I really love that advice, Ben. The the process is what it's all about. I, I totally yeah. love that. Well, I also like you're saying you've, uh, and I'll paraphrase here, but basically there's no point in not releasing something because you want it to be perfect because for yep. it to be perfect, it has to be released, right? And then, and then well, when it fails, that's your step you know, towards it, you know? Yeah, the, 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 there's an old saying, you know, in the film industry that a, a movie is never finished, it's abandoned. 
because you could just always be changing it. Yeah. There's always going to be something you wish was a little bit better and this, that, or the other, you know? And so maybe that's the other thing. If you strive to perfection in filmmaking, it's it's a feat you're never, ever, ever going to reach. And so <laughs> if you keep aiming for it, maybe, you know, you'll certainly keep getting better. Excellent. Even Spielberg gets bad reviews. Yeah, that's right. They all do. Um, and he cries about it on his big mountain of money. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So you, it's interesting because when we reached out for you for the film festival, going through your agent, your your public profile through your agent is that you're described as a Western Australian filmmaker. So I want to yes. know what do you think about the West Australian government possibly building a studio? There's been the talk at Fremantle. That's kind of been shelved. Yep. And then they're possibly yep. going to build it somewhere else. The money's there. What Do you yep. think building a studio in WA is a good thing or would it be better to put that money into, say, 100 feature films being made, you know, say through a one through the West Coast Visions? We could make 100 West Coast Vision films or we could build a studio. What what do you think about the studio concept? <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I think that that's a, a really great question. We could make 100 films, but will any of them generate any income for the government? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, like right now, I guarantee you there are not 100 filmable scripts yeah, anywhere yeah. in Western Australia, yeah. you know. Um, so, I, I look, I, I don't know, and I don't know if I'm qualified to talk about it. Um, oh, yes, you but, are. Come hey, on. Well, if they want to, if they want to build a studio in Perth, I think that that's absolutely fantastic, you know. And I'm, I'm all for it. I'm possibly the only director in Perth who's ever even set foot inside a studio, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And um, so, I, you know, I, I think that's great. But I think that it's not a matter of if you build it, they will come. Yeah. There's a lot of other things that we need, like we need to support the crew in Western Australia. And we've got to understand that um, Perth is the most isolated capital city in the world. I think it's the furthest city in the world from Los Angeles. And so we've got a smaller population. And presently, if they built a big studio, we don't have the crews, you know, mm-hmm. like we've only got enough people in Perth to effectively make one long form project at a time, mm. you know? And so we would have to hope that a lot of, uh, very qualified technicians from over east or anywhere in the world would see a studio being built in a young city like Perth as an opportunity for them to basically, you know, move to Western Australia and um, and be, you know, the only person in Perth who has a techno crane or something like that, you know. And so I think with, with the studio, we needed a lot of incentives to encourage highly qualified um, film technicians to want to come over with it because, um, you know, the other thing that Perth has got, which is so wonderful is, um, we've got all of the locations, you know, just a couple hours down South, you can be in a forest. We've got the most beautiful beaches in the world. We've got desert. We've got a, a climate which allows you to shoot pretty much, you know, throughout the whole year. Mm. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I look, I'm, I'm excited by it. I think it would be really great, but it's certainly not a, um, uh, a one-stop shop to fix all of our problems. Yeah, you, you, you got, they've got to support all the other feeding in, you know, crew, cast, um, you know, equipment. Yeah. Everything has to be – it has to become an ecosystem, doesn't it? For exactly. It, yeah, for it to work, exactly. for sure. And so tell us a bit about your latest project before we wrap up tonight, Ben. Oh, I, I, uh, which one? The one that I'm in post-production for? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. That one is um, – called Where All Light Tends to Go, and it's based on a book by um, David Joy, who is a fantastic American writer. He's written a whole bunch of books, um, and he's really worth um, 
getting into if you like reading um and uh, it's it's about a, a dude an older man um living in the appalachian mountains who is kind of the met kingpin in the hood and he's grooming his son to take over the family business um and then the son kind of decides that that may not be for him and so he hatches a plan to rip his dad off and run away with the girl of his dreams and so it's a it's a crime drama crime thriller um, it feels very much like a, a, a 90s or 70s movies uh, right. movie, uh, you know, fast cars, guns, um, very sort of masculine film um, with a terrific cast. Billy Bob Thornton is uh, the actor who plays the, um, the the dad, the big meth kingpin, and his <laughs> um, the actor who plays his son is is Hopper Penn, who is um, Robin Wright's son and Sean Penn's son, and uh, Robin Wright plays his mother in the movie, um, which is great. And we've got a wonderful supporting cast of Jackie Earl Haley and Brian Darcy James and Emma Booth, who I've never made a movie without, <laughs> Harrison Gilbertson. And, uh, yeah, it really is a wonderful cast. So I hope people respond to it. So please, any listeners out there, you know, keep your ear to the grindstone and uh, check it out if you hear it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And is are you expecting that to have like a cinema release or is it a streaming? Don't, Don't know yet? Don't know. I do know Universal are releasing the movie um, – uh, internationally, so that's good. So yep. it will be available, but um, you know, I'm I'm not sure if it's the uh, yeah. I, I don't know. It'll be up to them and their their number crunching people to realise if this is the kind of movie which warrants a cinema release or if it's better just in, ending up on a streamer because it is a small film and it's about you know and it's an independent film and it feels like an independent film. It's it, it was never meant to be a blockbuster or anything like that, and and it, it won't be a movie for everybody. So um, yeah. I could say I'd, I'd almost be certain that there'll be some theatrical screenings in Western Australia. Awesome. Oh, cool. Look forward to that. <laughs> we can get along and have a look. I want to give a big thank you for your time today, Ben, uh, coming on. It's been a really great chat. You can really feel the presence of your passion behind film and storytelling, and uh, that definitely comes across. It came across at the festival, and it's lovely to talk to someone that is just so passionate about you know, filmmaking and storytelling. So I really appreciate it. Is there anything else that you'd like to say or like to add or anything? No, just thank you very much for asking such um, considerate and uh, thought-out questions. That's okay. We try our best. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks, Ben. See ya. See ya. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. And that was Ben Young. What a terrific conversation with such a talented local West Australian filmmaker and if you're out there and you have a listen wherever you're listening to space brains make sure you hit us up with a review maybe a five-star rating wherever you get your good podcasts also let us know what you thought about tonight's episode through our socials so we can find us on facebook instagram and tiktok and of course now on youtube now on youtube just have a look for space brains productions and i'm sure you'll find us leave a comment ask a question suggest a film that we can have a look at in the future. And speaking of that, episode 87, what film are we going to do? We are going to do Salute of the Jugger or, a.k.a. The Blood of Heroes. Yes, in Australia, Salute of the Jugger. In America, The Blood of Heroes. Starring Rukta Ha, which we had with Blade Runner a few episodes back. Gidal Rukta and Vince D'Onofrio from Full Metal Jacket. Terrific actors. And nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific actors and I'm going to look forward to having a chat to you about this, sorry. I, I, I 
Look forward to being chatted to about it. Good. I'm going to chat down. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. See ya.